Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, dear colleagues. Today is a day on which I'm really, really excited. I must confess I'm really excited. I feel very much like a student at the moment, not so much as a professor, because it's my big, big pleasure to introduce and to announce Professor Lawrence Lessig to you, uh, who is, if I may say so, one of the guiding intellectual figures in my personal life. I, I had the privilege to meet uh, Lawrence Lessig here in Vienna about 20 years ago, and I had the privilege to, to be one of the early readers of his really groundbreaking book, um, Code and Other Laws of Cyberspace, somewhere in 1999. And I must say that this was one of the, one of the very few books you read in your life that change your life in a way. Um, and, and since then, I have been monitoring what Professor Lessig is doing, and therefore I'm really excited to have him with us today. I may very briefly introduce him to you um, so that uh, for, for the case, for the not really very plausible case that you have not heard too much about him in detail, so all of you do, but still I try very briefly to introduce him. So Professor Lawrence Lessig is the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School. Prior to returning to Harvard, he taught at Stanford Law School where he founded the Center for Internet and Society and at the University of Chicago. He clerked for Judge Richard Posner on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and Justice Antonin Scalia on the United States Supreme Court. He is inter alia the founder and founding board member of Creative Commons and serves on the scientific board of AXA Research Fund many, many other prices, recommendations, and so on. Inter alia, he is cited by the New Yorker as the most important thinker on intellectual property in the internet era. That is, in my view, with all respect, um, a misinterpretation of his work, because I don't think that he's one of the most important thinkers on intellectual property in the internet era. I think he's one of the most important thinker on law in the internet era. It's not only intellectual property. And the more and more we see of the developments of the internet, the more and more it becomes clear in my view that we are talking about more than just intellectual property. Interestingly, that's the last remark that I may make. Interestingly, but typically perhaps for an American professor, in his teaching activities, he is very, very broad. So I, I, I happen to learn that in this year, he's teaching contracts. Um, um, and he has also a very long lasting and broad teaching experience in all fields of the law, including, of course, uh, public law, uh, constitutional law in particular, and intellectual property and internet law. Professor Lessig, Larry, Larry, I'm really excited. As I said, thank you so much for making it here. How are you at the moment? Well, I, it's wonderful to see you again, Nicholas. And, um, you know, I'm as good as an American can be in the middle of the craziest moment in American history mm -hmm. since the Civil War. Wow, that's a big, <laughs> that's already a big start. Wow. Okay. So uh, when it comes to the day-to-day -day basics, um, are you teaching at the moment on campus or um, are you teaching remotely? And how do students react on the situation? So we're Harvard's mm -hmm. remote completely. We're still not sure whether we'll be back in the spring. Um, and so uh, the students, you know, I think are doing as well as they can. Um, the real difference, we started remote in the spring, uh, midway through the term. And the real difference I feel is that I at least feel like I knew who the students were mm -hmm. before we started remote. Um, but now in this context, um, you know, I have a bunch of first year students who've never seen the Harvard mm -hmm. campus. Um, uh, and um, they're trying to integrate or knit together a community totally virtually. And it's difficult for them, and it's difficult to teach in this context. So um, it's unfortunate doubly to be in the middle of a pandemic, but in such a poorly managed uh, context mm -hmm. for that and, pandemic. And uh, how long do you expect students to stay off campus? Is there any perspective for them to come back in the near future? It's still up in the air. Um, I'm hoping we can find a way to to come back in the spring, which would mean um, at the end of uh, the spring term mm -hmm. begins at the end of January. Um, you know that I, I think most of the learning right now is that the most important thing to worry about is is ventilation. And so there's been an extraordinary effort to um, retrofit ventilation systems that can uh, exchange air more quickly and even um, um, use technology to clean the air in a way that uh, was not originally designed. So I think to the extent, at least in the newer buildings, you can achieve that, there's some hope to be able to 
bring people back. But um, right yeah. now it's still- And does that have any impact on the attractivity of Harvard as a place to study? So do you see that students are less interested or that they are less willing to pay? You know, I know that there's been that fight. In fact, one of my students was leading a lawsuit to um, cl uh, class action to try to get some of their um, some of their fees back. Um, um, you know, so I, I, I don't think there's any doubt that somebody would say I'd rather be attending Harvard Law School in mm -hmm. person than virtually. Um, but, you know, I think that one thing that this has done is it's led students to be much more um, open to making connections and friendships uh, and to be, uh, you know, in a sense, more uh, devoted to building a community. Um, mm -hmm. And so it's a virtual community, but there are regular meetings and there are regular meetups and and then the kids who are actually still here in Cambridge, you know, they're very careful, like they tell me, I mean, who knows, but they do socially distanced meetups outside. And so far the weather's been fine, so that's been okay. I'm a little bit anxious of what the world looks like once winter begins. Um, you know, when we used to like uh, uh, Game of Thrones, um, uh, there were many Game of Thrones memes that would be really appropriate right now. And the first is winter is mm -hmm. coming. Um, and the second is the White Walkers, um, which of course, uh, is a terrifying battle that we're going to see happen in America in the next yeah, uh, yeah, couple months. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, perhaps, if I may, let me ask you one or two questions about your student body, uh, because one of the papers that I read with big interest that you had published in the last years was a paper on how academic corruption works, um, a paper in which you write about the problem that professors in particular professors of law, in some cases, uh, get into all kinds of different biases because of the fact that they are paid by stakeholders for legal opinions. And when I read the text, I, 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 the, the white elephant or the big elephant in the room for me uh, in this text was the question in how far such a bias could appear because of a specific student body professors have or don't have. Um, and I would expect that your student body, obviously, is one of the most brilliant, but also one of the uh, most privileged, I would say, um, worldwide uh, when it comes to law students. Uh, do you think that there is any, I mean, do, does that change anything in your, in your or your colleagues' point of view when it comes to legal issues and when it comes into, let's say, legal issues of solving such a pandemic situation with legal means when it comes to the educational system? You know, that's a really interesting question. I've never really thought about that dimension here. Um, I think that most students would think that in fact, the substance of what we teach is extraordinarily um, sensitive and indeed contrary to the presumed class bias that you would expect exists because of the relatively elite I mean, the absolutely elite context mm -hmm. of the Harvard Law School. Um, um, so I wouldn't, I, I don't think that the kind of corruption that I was worried about is operating in this way. Although, you know, there's plenty of ways in which we um, frame what we talk about and how we think about things that are driven by presumptions um, that are related to that kind of corruption. But that's, for me, the real type of corruption here is where, um, you know, people, um, um, engage in uh, extracurricular uh, um, work that they're being funded to take and not funded just for their expenses, mm -hmm. but funded personally, like they're hired to take uh, uh, these positions. And they develop um, attitudes or views on the law, which can't help but be affected by the interests mm -hmm. of those who are funding them. And, they, you know, some people are aware enough about that. And so they're very careful to flag what they're doing. Um, but others are more oblivious. You know, we're all very willing to believe the good faith of ourselves. And we're all willing to believe that we're good at uh, determining the objective facts and not being affected by these kinds of psychological biases. But the reality is we're all human. And so we're all deeply affected by psychological biases and the confirmation bias in particular, which um, can be triggered by this interest, the self-interest. Um, to, um, to confirm and to bend the world to the view that fits with, you know, the judgment um, that's appropriate for the people who are paying us. So I think that, you know, I think what I try to emphasize in this work about this kind of corruption is, um, this is not a moral question. I mean, I think it's a moral question whether we, we address it or not, but it's not like 
We're talking about immoral people. We're talking about people living within a system that allows them to be improperly influenced because of the way um, funding happens within that system. And the, and the remedy for that is not to shake a finger at the professors. It's to, it's to set up institutional norms and rules that make it um, impossible for them to be in that kind of compromising position, or if they are, to at least isolate them. Um, so, you know, the compromise here is not just about money. So in the Harvard Law School, I'm very proud of the, um, the very strict um, norms about um, conflicts that exist, um, uh, uh, even if you're doing a case pro bono. So I took a case to the Supreme Court about the constitutional status of uh, presidential electors. Um, there's no doubt that my view of this is affected by the fact that I was an advocate. Um, and so if I, if I teach this issue in the context of a class, I've got to flag it up front. I've got to say, look, I, I took this case to the Supreme Court. I have a very distinct view of it. Here's my view. You should understand that. And you should filter what I say in light of what you know is my bias, my view here. Um, I, I think that's an important kind of conflict to identify. Uh, but it's still different from a financial conflict. Um, I had a friend who told me about a colleague of his uh, who was uh, doing consulting in a tax area. And um, he, wrote a, uh, um, he wrote a memo for the IRS about a certain tax structure. And, um, and he shared it with my friend. And then he said to my friend, um, uh, you know, he was going to publish it. And then he said, I hope people know that I just did this for the money, that they don't really think that this is what I believe. Um, and then the next time my friend said he talked to him about it, it turns out that this guy was representing that this is what he believed. So the point was, he bent his view of the law to fit it to the interests of his clients. And then his own view of the law bent to the interests of the clients. And he, and he began to think that this is what he actually thought, as opposed to this is what he was led to think because it turned out to be a lot of money that um, was, you know, could fund his kid going to school or something like that. So I, I think it's a very important issue that we've got to be very sensitive to. And um, uh, and so I've been yeah, thinking about absolutely. that. Absolutely. But time. I think this is, if I may say so, one of the big differences between American universities and, and European, at least Central European, many of the Central European universities, which is that we do not directly rely on external funds. We as an institution in Europe, I mean. And, and we do not directly rely on, on study fees uh, coming from students. And isn't it the case that the, the very fact that Harvard needs to take care of, you know, getting the money, you need to run the whole school, uh, bringing some risk with it that this institutional setting, again, produces all kinds of biases, even if professors do not get uh, extra payment for this? And is this reflected somewhere? Well, um, so I think actually it's better than in other institutions. Like, so at the Harvard Medical School, um, probably 95% of Harvard Medical School professors have their salary paid by somebody other than the Harvard Medical School. You know, they have their salary paid by a research lab that they have to raise money for um, or the hospital where they're doing work. And so in that sense, they are not at all independent of you know, people who have a very direct interest in what they're doing. At the law school, you know, at least at um, elite law schools, you know, which is an extraordinary benefit that I'm so grateful to be able to, to, to have, um, there's a pretty strict line of independence. So the law school dean, of course, is raising money from everybody uh, he can. John Manning is a great dean of the law school. But never does the dean say, you know, I need you to teach this or write this or do this in order for us to raise money. Um, and indeed, you know, in the, um, when I was first at, at the Chicago Law School, you know, we have a salary structure where we're paid for our teaching for nine months. And then if we commit to research, then we get a summer salary. Um, and the summer salary is paid by um, funders. Um, but, the, but the structure of the funding was at the end of the summer, the dean would send you a note and say, okay, I need you to thank the following people for your funding for the work that you did during that summer. And the point is, you didn't know who those people were before you'd done the work. And so it's not like you were conforming your views to anybody's particular view when you did your work. So I think that in fact, um, part of my interest here was recognizing the sensitivity that the law schools have had forever in assuring that the faculty feels independent 
of the funders um, uh, by these institutional means to assure independence. And contrast that with other departments where I think that there's maybe not enough or, or not the same kind of sensitivity to assuring that type of independence. So that, you know, we can all in some sense be as independent as possible. Now, I, I think it would be better if we had a more reliable um, type of funding from the state, um, especially other institutions. I think, you know, this type of independence and assuring it is really important. But it happens at both levels. You know, I, I, you look at, um, you look at um, legal academics in Britain, for example. And of course, Britain can't pay their, um, their academics much, um, or at least not much relative to the opportunity cost of being a lawyer in Britain. Um, and so you see many of these academics spending an extraordinary amount of their time doing private consulting. Uh, and, and, and I think that's its own kind of corruption of the academic world, because if you're constantly focused on what should I work on in order to enable my private consulting, you're not working on the sort of things that might turn out to be the most important questions for the law in Britain. You know, it might be that certain areas are not going to have much private consulting, like the law of welfare um, or, you know, constitutional theory, um, that it would be, you know, good to have academics who could pursue that independently. But they can't because they know that, you know, there's no private company out there that's going to hire them to be a barrister in the context of you know, um, welfare law. Um, so I think that, you know, one really important thing is to assure that we can pay um, public servants, which I think, um, you know, scholars and teachers are enough so that they can rely on that pay alone uh, to, you know, to be able to raise their family, but not have to bend themselves to the interests of private companies in order to supplement their their compensation yeah that's uh, there is one tendency that i see in europe and i would really very much like to hear from you about your opinion on this one tendency here in europe is that there is a third way to do things which is that institutions also public institutions take significant amounts of money to fund specific areas of research which they think that might be important in particular the european commission yeah. has i mean that's the the most important money source European universities have um, when it comes to research. Uh, and obviously the European Commission doesn't distribute the money randomly or equally, but they have specific uh, programs and calls and, and, and topics they are interested in. And, and, and the basic decision each researcher then needs to take is, needs to make is now whether do I follow this and do I want to get external sources so that I can pay two more additional postdocs, um, or do I not do this, but just follow my individual research interests? Do you see this as, as a problem when it comes to independence of researchers? And if so, how would you, how, how would you recommend to deal, how do you, and how would you recommend to deal with this situation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a complicated question, and I've not looked at the exact structure of the European Commission. Um, so technically, that's reducing the independence of researchers, because obviously they're dependent on this type of funding. But I think the interesting question is, what is the dependence or independence of the European Commission? So I've seen, for example, certain areas of law um, uh, or certain areas of research, for example, research around um, uh, RF radiation, you know, cell phone radiation, where um, the vast majority of money in that field of research comes mm -hmm. from cell phone companies. Okay, well, if you're a researcher and you're taking money from cell phone companies, there's no plausible way in which you're going to be independent in your judgment about the, uh, about the relative safety of RF radiation in the context that you're researching. You just can't do it because what you and your institution knows is that if you publish things that are critical, mm -hmm. the money dries up. And so, you, you know, you either, it's not that you lie. It's just you adjust the direction of your research in a way that makes sure that you don't challenge the uh, underlying institution that's funding the work that you are dependent on. Now, that's the kind of corruption I think we need to worry about. We, need, we can't have researchers who are afraid to find the truth. Um, and so, you know, in the European con uh, Commission context, um, there might be that same kind of conflict. I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, if the European Commission is getting all of its money to look at RF radiation from, you know, the cell phone no, companies in Europe, money. that's a problem. It's public money. That's a structural problem. Okay, but it's, right. So then, so then I think it's less of a problem. Um, and then you've got to ask, well, 
is the influence, what is the, what are the, what are the kinds of uh, considerations that are driving the commission's judgment about what's important to do and what's not important to do? Now, I would say, even then, it's a disaster to allow too much uh, influence from any one type of source. So, you know, governments in particular are going to be very conservative about how they think about what important questions are. Or maybe they're too politically correct about what they think important questions are. Like they're responding to political concerns as opposed to knowledge concerns. So I, I think it's really important to, to have some degree of independence so that if you decide not to follow the, the diktat of the European Commission about what in your field should be the studied issues, you have an opportunity to do that. Because, you know, obviously, I mean, I remember when I first started doing the law of cyberspace. Um, you know, for many people, even, you know, at, in, in American universities, Cass Sunstein, one of my closest friends and obviously one of the most brilliant legal academics in, 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 in you know, the world. Um, when I first started doing the law of cyberspace, he was like, I, I don't think this is a good thing for you to do. I don't think it's a good for your career because it's just not important or not interesting. And, you know, fortunately, I was independent enough to say thank you, Cass, for that advice. But I, I really think there's something here and I could like march forward and, you know, the reality is I think it's taken 10 or 20 years for people even to understand what there was there. I mean, you know, Nicholas, you were mm. early and, 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 and you got it right away. But most people don't didn't quite see what the point was. Um, I, and so I was very fortunate that I was free enough to do that without the European Commission telling me, no, 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 we want you to work on, you know, these traditional questions of constitutional law. So I, I think this is the, the kind of question we need to ask is systematically, do we have enough opportunity for new and different work to be done? And the work that is being done, are we assured that the influence is not being driven by people who have a commercial interest in one particular answer? And, as and your to answer to this question, when it comes to the Harvard situation, would be positive. So you say that there, there is enough independence yeah. in the system, although the dean needs to take care of, you know, yeah. No, but but again, it depends on the particular kind of work that I'm doing. Now, I think where it's a problem is, you know, as a legal academic, most of us, you know, simply read books and write articles. Um, some of us do massive empirical projects, um, and those massive empirical projects take lots of resources. So if so, if I were to do a massive empirical project, I'd have to raise the money for that. And when we raise the money for that, then the question is. Um, you know, it's coming in some sense from outside the law school. What are the uh, influences that are operating mm. in the context of raising that money? So there's a very famous example that um, Olin Foundation was a very conservative think tank that committed itself to spending all of its capital um, within a certain period of time. I can't remember if it was 10 years or 20 years. But basically what they did is they went out to the law schools and they recruited academics to work on particular projects that they thought were really important. So one example was the jury. So the Olin Foundation was convinced that the jury was producing irrationally large verdicts mm. against corporations. So they funded all sorts of research by, you know, high quality academics to address the question of the irrationality of the jury. Um, now, none of the academics were actually paid more if they got the right answer than if they got the wrong answer. And, in, and these were not like you know, people who are depending on recurring funding for this. But still, what the Olin Foundation could do was shift the nature of research in legal, the legal academy towards these questions which were really important to conservative thinkers, as opposed to the questions that would have otherwise um, uh, been pursued. So this kind mm -hmm. of budget constraint was its own kind of corruption um, that, you know, I'm not saying it's absolutely wrong and, you know, just like in the way that I would say that, you know, cheating on the data or making up facts is wrong, absolutely wrong, but, it, but, it, but it's still something we ought to be worried about. So if I were the dean of a law school that saw a huge amount of conservative money coming in, pushing an agenda in one direction, I would think it my job to make sure that I have another huge amount of money coming into the law school, pushing research mm -hmm. in another direction, like so that we continue to make maintain the relative independence of the academy from the commercial or financial interests yeah. of our funders. Uh, but, but one of the problems that I see here in Europe on this is that uh, some of the stakeholders simply don't have the money to fund the relevant research, right? So there are some voices which are yeah. not really uh, analyzed in detail, obviously, because there's no source for this. 
And that makes it very difficult, in my view, at least, to hear all the voices, in particular when it comes to internet policy, for example, right? So in, in this field, yeah. you have all yeah. kinds of players with huge budgets um, having an interest in this or that legal question and then trying to find uh, researchers doing this right. uh, and 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 the stakeholders having this interest can be public stakeholders but stakeholders but it can also be private companies and it's not really a problem to find then somebody who is willing to do that work independently so nobody's directly paid for a specific outcome whereas other questions right. uh, fundamental rights questions for example that are of relevance to NGOs um, are not funded because the NGO doesn't have the money, obviously, and, and that makes it very difficult, in particular when it comes to a legal de debate, to have both voices heard equally. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's a it's a hugely important problem. Um, you know, I I it was about a, a dozen years ago where I kind of shifted away from working in the law of cyberspace and intellectual property to take up. These questions of corruption. Um, uh, a friend of mine convinced me this was the most important question to take up, so I took it up. Um, but I remember at the time, um, you know, in some sense, first feeling this uh, type of influence express itself. There was a big debate in the United States about um, what became known as network neutrality, and um, and there had been a long debate about fair use. Um, and so I set up at Stanford a, uh, um, a center for uh, um, uh, uh, internet and society. Um, and when we set that up, I came to Stanford and my dean, and I said to my dean, I'll come to Stanford and be a professor. You will fund this center. I don't wanna be involved in the fundraising and uh, the center can do whatever we want. And she said, fine, that's what we'll do. So I came, she funded it. I didn't know who the funders were. We did whatever we wanted. Then um, later, um, uh, I discovered Google had given a bunch of money to the center. You know, and from my own perspective, that was in some sense fine because I didn't know that. I didn't depend on it. My job didn't, I didn't raise the money from them so we could do whatever we wanted. But I remember after I left, I came back and people were talking about the problem of transactional research funding in the sense that, you know, these companies would come and they would say, we're happy to fund research on X. Um, and we'll be happy to continue to fund research on X. Of course, only it's only in our interest to do that as long as the conclusions are A, B, and C. And if they're not, that's fine. You know, you should write whatever you want, but we're not going to be able to continue to fund it. So you could see this influence directly. You have all the money coming from interested parties who are expressly demanding a particular kind of answer. And then you have people who are running departments who are like, well, how do I continue to employ these people in my department. I need to get this money. So, so this is the kind of systematic corruption that I think we need to be much more sensitive to. And I think Europe, I agree with you, I think Europe is particularly vulnerable to it because, um, you know, obviously, I, you know, I'm, I'm often criticized in the United States for being so critical of the United States. So let me celebrate a part of the United States I can celebrate, um, which is I think that we have a much more robust tradition of privately funding um, institutions like, you know, great institutions like uh, like Harvard. And I don't mean privately funding um, in the sense that there are five rich people, but that, you know, when you graduate from Harvard, you feel an obligation to give back. And so a huge amount of our support comes from, you know, individuals giving, you know, smaller, larger, um, but lots of money to help fund the institution function. And what that means is, the institution is relatively independent from the whims of government or the whims of industry. Um, you know, we don't have to say yes. Um, we might say yes, we might be tempted to say yes, and that's bad, but we don't have to say yes. European institutions, I think, have not developed the same source of independence. I mean, I remember when I was at Cambridge and um, people, Cambridge started, I, I, I got a master's degree at Cambridge and then Cambridge started asking their graduates to give money to Cambridge. And most of my friends were, this is crazy. I'm never getting give money to Cambridge. And my view was, why wouldn't you give money to Cambridge? Cambridge was the most important education you had. Like, why shouldn't you be invested in continuing to support it? But my point is, the, the, the attitude was, this is not for me. This is for the government or this is for somebody else to fund. And the consequence of that attitude is that these institutions become vulnerable to these types of influences much more severely, much more critically, than they would if they had another source of uh, a source of funding. So I think we have to push this question into the foreground 
and really interrogate whether the structure of funding creates the right kind of independence. And if it doesn't, we got to have a find. Uh, uh, we got to have find a way to make sure that independence is established in some other yeah. more so direction. There are very, very many interesting points in this. At least three that I would like to mention. The first one is I think we have some kind of a cultural clash here between the U.S., American, and the European, because what you uh, argue here to be a strong point of the U.S. system, I would, I would, if I may, take the other position, the opposite position, which is. The, the European approach is, uh, is, the, is the more objective one in the sense that Europeans are more um, independent in what they are deciding because, because it's public money and, and it's not private money coming from alumni um, having some kind of interest in, in, in building up the institution in a specific way. Uh, so, th so that's already very interesting. The second point about your Stanford um, uh, story uh, I mean, uh, the unfair part of this is you are an absolute superstar, right? So, you, I mean, you can go to Stanford and, and don't do anything there and still you are an attractive professor in Stanford. So it's very cheap for the university to hire you uh, and telling you we don't mind what you are doing. But I would assume that this could be different for people who are not that much in focus um, and, and that the institutional corruption problem therefore is more important for people who are not in, 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 in this position as you are. And, and the third point, that's something that I would then like to use to, to direct to, to talk into another direction. I think the friend you were mentioning who, um, who told you that this would be the most important question was probably Aaron Swartz, correct? Yeah, so obviously uh, there is an interconnection between the development of the technology that is uh, surrounding us um, and the priorities we set in steering the development of this technology. And, and my reading of your work, if I may say so, is that you are in a way coming back now to the, to the starting point of your career, which is to bring back uh, some of the internet governance and digitalization governance issues of your topic into your ethical work, because it's, it's, it's one question with two sides. Um, um, and I would really love to hear from you whether I, uh, whether I interpret this correctly um, and whether your, your, your interest in, in technology is in a way coming back for this very reason. And, and there are several texts that I read from you that, that I would use if you don't agree with me as an argument uh, in interpreting your, your work in this way. Well, yeah, I mean, let me just make sure we're not, um, um, we're not, yeah. Not disagreeing. I mean, I, I, I don't. So, so, so the first point is, um, I, of course, if public money is adequate, in the sense that you can pay people enough so that they focus exclusively on their academic work, um, and you can give students enough so that they, you know, can afford to just be students and not, you know, also work at the same time, then it's great. It's better. It's better than any other system. And and so I'm, I have no doubt about that. My only point is what we've seen in the actual way public money functions is that it turns out not to be enough for the academics. So like as I was describing in Britain, they've got to spend an extraordinary amount of time, you know, doing private practice instead of being academics. That's bad. Um, and uh, and and then it also, you know, depends on, you know, a lot of financial research, uh, a lot of in, uh, interested money funding academic research. So corporations spend a lot of money in Europe funding directly mm. these research projects. Um, and I think that's that's compromising. And I would only suggest that we distinguish between two kinds of private money. So one kind of private money is strategic private money in the sense that the people giving it are acting very strategically. So they'll say, I'm happy to fund your network neutrality research as long as you conclude network neutrality is a waste of time. Um, well, you know, I think that's corrupt. Um, and so I think that kind of private money is terrible. But there's another kind of private money, which is like you could think of it as small donor private money. So, you know, when Harvard says to its graduate students, we need you to commit to giving $5,000 every year to Harvard, um, you know, and they get 100,000 people to do that. Uh, that's a private money. But it's not strategic in the sense that the people who give the $5,000 can't call up the president of Harvard and say, I want you to make sure that nobody at Harvard says network neutrality is an important idea. They just have no influence. So it's private money. And in this sense, I'm saying it creates a kind of independence, um, which means independence from both strategic private money, corporate money, and also government money. Because, you know, government money, governments can also 
be corrupting in the kind of ins uh, the kind of research that they're pushing or resisting. I mean, you know, in the United States right now, you have the president of the United States saying that we're going to cut off funding to high schools if they don't stop teaching about, you know, the Civil War, about racism, and instead talk about how great America is. I mean, that is the most corrupt use of public resources you can imagine. Yet it's possible to have an effect where the only thing you have is this kind of private resources. So that's number one. Number two, absolutely. Um, I am an extremely privileged academic. I can do what I want and have always been able to do what I want. Never once in my life have I been told this is what I have to say or do uh, in exchange for my job. That's extraordinarily important for me. But And I completely realize that 99% of the rest of academics don't have this freedom. And 99% of other institutions, I mean, Harvard can afford to do the right thing. Um, Penn State, I don't think they can afford to do the right thing. If we don't have institutional norms that tell them very strongly, if you don't do the right thing, you're not going to qualify as a university. So mm -hmm. I, this is why I think the issue is important. It's not important to make sure Harvard can be good. Harvard can be good. We can choose to be good. Like we can afford to be good. But every other university on the way down, you know, the, the scale, no, that's not true. They, they are dri driven uh, too much, I think, by these increasing uh, commercial opportunities that, that become mm -hmm. central to what they can do. Um, and then third, coming back, I mean, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever left. Um, you know, it's just that, um, you know, remember the law of cyberspace at its core was a book about a theory of regulation. And so what the law of cyberspace said is, um, you know, we have to recognize that regulation has many modalities and law is one modality, um, uh, norms are another modality. Um, uh, and I'll tell you a story about, you know, Vienna is very central to my thinking in this, in creating this idea. But so norms are a se second modality. The market is a third modality um, of, uh, that regulates people's behavior. And, you know, the found or constructed environment, the architecture is a kind of rea uh, modality. And the whole point of the book was to say, we need to recognize the way in which all of these either support or conflict with values that we think are important. And the project of regulation is to figure out how we intervene in each of them to bring about the kind of values or society that we want. So the internet was so exciting to people originally because it was an architecture that enabled incredible free speech opportunities, incredible privacy opportunities, incredible innovation opportunities. That was a feature of its architecture. And the point of code was to say, that's a contingent feature of that architecture. We could imagine the architecture being changed so that it no longer secured free speech, it no longer secured privacy, it no longer secured innovation. And so we need to decide, do we think those values are important? Because if we do, we need to intervene to make sure that they're not compromised. Um, and and you know, I, I, my view is that that understanding, that way of thinking about regulation, um, you know, has only recently really become central to how people talk about it. And so it's, you know, I'm happy to see it finally occur, but it still feels like we're 20 years behind in thinking about it because we've lost so much in this interim period where people were oblivious to the way that values that were important to us um, can be destroyed by these um, modifications of, uh, you know, most important to me is architecture, but also market incentives and also, um, um, you know, social norm uh, incentives. Um, and so so I don't feel like I've ever stopped mm -hmm. thinking in that framework. The work that Aaron Swartz got me to think about, though, was, um, you know, was focused more on the, the structure of the norms around really important institutions um, as they were corrupted by market influences. Um, uh, and so, you know, Congress is the one that I'm most focused on, right, the way in which the way congressmen raise money corrupts their ability to represent everybody equally. It seems such an obvious point. But for many years, people were like, no, 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 there's no corruption there. That's not corruption. That's just public fund. That's just the way we fund elections. Um, but, that, but, that, but that's the same kind of analysis. I feel like that dynamic has been at the center of what I've always done. And, you know, if it now has to be more explicit about technology again, okay, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to admit uh. that. 
just one remark to your first point. I think the situation in Europe is more complex in the sense that everyone in Europe is uh, independent in, in the very basic understanding, right? So I, if, I, if I stop working tomorrow, I would still get my payment, right? So, if I, um, so that's, in the, that's the absolute independence in a way, right? I can, I can start thinking about whatever I can, I want. However, I mean, there are all kinds of incentives in the system uh, that don't force me to do something, but which make it more attractive to go this path and not the other one. And one of the incentives is to try to apply for third party funded research projects, often coming from public sources. So there is no Google directly paying for something, but there is the commission or the government or, or an independent even research body, right? In, in many cases, it's even academics deciding on the priorities. And you can then either follow the path mm -hmm. or you don't, right? But if you want to do an above average career, you better follow the path, right? So this, this, this is the situation. It's not, it's not black or white in the, in the sense, uh, which makes it so uh, difficult in Vienna or in Austria, or in Europe. Um, and now to the last point about that you never left this, uh, this thinking of the internet uh, regulation and regulation as such. Um, I, I, I agree, uh, I fully agree, um, but I, I, and, and the very, however, I find it extremely interesting now that you explicitly start to write again or to, to publish papers um, and to give presentations on internet regulation 20 years after after this book and after this this really groundbreaking article, The Law of the Horse, which was, in my view, groundbreaking, not only because of this idea uh, that you now again explained about the different layers of regulation in the internet, but also because it, it puts the question into the center in how far this is a legal discipline to think about and what makes it a legal discipline, mm -hmm. um, which was very mm -hmm. weird, I would say, in 1999 or 2000, but which is, I mean, nobody really asks that question anymore. Um, and, and you are now coming back explicitly to this, even uh, announcing presentations on the law of the horse 20 years later. And, and, and one of the arguments that I found there, and I would really like uh, you to, to go a little bit more in detail here if you want, is one of the arguments that I read was that you say that the internet moves in phases and we are entering the third in 20 years. Could you perhaps elaborate a little bit more what these phases are and, and why it is important to think about them now? Yeah, I mean, I think the best way to see it is to focus on a particular problem. Um, so, and this is really what's brought me back into this. Um, you know, we, we have in the United States a really devastating uh, reality um, that's produced by the information infrastructure that we conduct politics within. And by the infrastructure, I mean both cable television and the internet. These infrastructures are designed to polarize us. They uh, profit the more they can turn us into crazy um, leftists or crazy people on the right. Um, the more they can rile us up to hate the other side, the more money they make. Their economic incentive is to turn us into crazy people, and they do that. And that's who we've become. Now, you know, so that's that's the observation. How do we relate this to the law of the horse? Well, you know, the reality is the internet became radically different once um, advertising was discovered as the mechanism through which the whole infrastructure would be paid. You know, when 1999, nobody was thinking about advertising as the core driver of innovation in the context of the internet, like people were hoping. But you know, it was these stupid banner ads that had no, you know, no ability to gather anything. But when Google um, and Facebook began to discover, you know, the digital exhaust um, of uh, people's interactions on the internet, um, and begin to realize that they could turn that byproduct, um, you know, basically just what people are doing, into enormously valuable, into, uh, you know, property for them because they could map our preferences and likely desires and therefore sell those uh, mappings to advertisers. The whole model of what the internet would become radically changed. Um, and, so, uh, and so as it becomes, um, you know, um, uh, what's been referred, you know, I mean, what, you know, Susanna, uh, Shoshana uh, Zuboff describes um, um, in her, you know, magisterial book, this kind of 
pervasive surveillance infrastructure, not to support the Stasi, but to support advertising. And it's not just pervasive. I mean, it's not just surveillance. It's also intervention. Like they're poking us and making us crazy so that they can produce more information so that they can better sell more products through the advertising they can sell. Okay, so, so when you step back and you think, whoa, a new market model has radically affected the development of technology in the internet, turning it into a, a, a super surveillance infrastructure. You know, whereas 20 years ago, part of the things we celebrated was that it was an anonymous infrastructure. Like you could do whatever you want. Nobody could figure out who you were or what you were doing. That's, that was a point of celebration. Now that architectural feature has been completely inverted. And now it's almost a perfect surveillance infrastructure, but it's not surveillance to, to, to serve the traditional things we're afraid of surveillance serving, namely, namely the government or the police state. It's surveillance to serve surveillance capitalism, as Zuboff puts it. Um, and, and, you know, if, if all that did was to make it easier for us to buy sneakers, I, I'd say, okay, great. Like, we can buy sneakers more simply, and you're not going to waste your time advertising uh, mountain climbing equipment to me, because you know that I don't care about mountain climbing. But, you know, sneakers or, like, places to take my kids for hikes, that's, that's important to me. That, that's good. So if that's all it did, I would say we'd say that's fine. But when we realize that what it's also doing is destroying the capacity for democratic deliberation, we've got to stand back and say, wait a minute, nobody, nobody made this decision that we were going to develop a technology that destroyed democracy and just give it a free pass. And so I think the only way to see that is to go back to the law of the horse infrastructure framework and like recognize the way that these different modalities feed each other and then begin to think about how do we intervene to produce the kind of society that we want. And I think, you know, in America, we are desperately in need of a way to produce an information ecosystem that doesn't turn us into crazy people. Uh, and, and it's not clear constitutionally we're even allowed to do that, right? Because we also have constitutional norms that limit the ability of the government to resist the way the market develops information ecologies. First Amendment says, no, you can't regulate that. Well, if we can't regulate it and all, you know, and, and we're going to have this kind of junk food of information ecology and turns us into, you know, hideously uh, ignorant, it's a parallel hideously obese, you know, in the junk food market, um, people, I don't know how democracy survives, but, but that's the nature of the problem. And that's why I think it's important to think again about the way technology contributes to this problem, because it's, it is, I think, the fundamental problem yeah. of democracy. Right? I, I think I very much agree with the last part. I'm not sure whether I fully agree with the surveillance capitalism part. Perhaps we come back to this. But I would like to ask a question first, which is, I, I mean, one of the, uh, one of the uh, outcomes of your, your change of interest, I would call it, was that you are much more dealing with U.S. problems now than you did in 1999 or so, right? So code and other laws of cyberspace was something yeah. that could be read everywhere. And it was relevant to a European or an Asian or an African reader. Many of the books that you're writing at the moment deal very much with the US situation. Uh, and also your argument at the moment, if I understood it correctly, is a very US based argument. Is this, is this the price you need to pay because you, you are further elaborating the focus and therefore you need to be more specific when it comes to the country? Or is this, uh, or is this not true? Or is there a third answer to this? And then the second point, uh, if I may, uh, very briefly, um, I would say uh, when, you, when you're talking about that, we need to re rethink about how to set up the architecture, et cetera, what would be the incentive uh, or what would be the instrument, the tool to, to do something out of the knowledge that we develop here, right? So what is the, the how is this then transferred into the political slash legal system, the outcome? Yeah, so first about the um, domestic nature of the work. Um, you know, when I began doing corruption work, um, again, against the background of law of the horse, realizing that, you know, every culture is gonna have its own set of norms and understandings. And so when you speak, use the word corruption, mm -hmm. it's very local, 
right? You, there's no universal model of corruption. Um, and so the kind of corruption that I was focused on in the United States doesn't exist in France, but a different kind of corruption does, um, you know, or it doesn't exist in Italy, but a different kind of corruption exists in Italy. So the, the particular things I'm talking about, I would not say are universal, even if the particular problem, corruption, is universal. So I do think you need to be local in understanding the connection between the problem and the local expectations and understandings and, and, um, and, the, uh, and, the, mm -hmm. and the constitutional norms. But this particular version of it, you know, focusing on the way the technical infrastructure is incentivized to produce a certain kind of public and to feed certain interests in the public, that is increasingly becoming universal. So, you know, I, I kind of think of the United States as the canary in the coal mine, you know, this sort of um, technology where uh, when miners would go down into coal mines, they would carry canaries in cages. When the canary died, they knew there was a gas leak, so they would immediately get out. Um, you know, so we're the canary in the coal mine. You should look at the United States, see the way the information ecology in the United States has developed and be terrified to the extent you see yourself copying it. Like there was a period in the 90s where countries around the world were like, we're just going to copy the United States and deregulation of, of public broadcasting and encouraging of the Internet in all sorts of ways. And, and I think right now you should be looking at the United States and saying, what is it about the policies that have produced this particular mix of terribleness? And mm -hmm. what do we do to avoid it? Like, mm -hmm. how do we resist it? Um, uh, now, I don't know that we know enough yet mm -hmm. to answer that first question. Like, what is the what are the policies to produce this mess? It, it, most people don't even see the mess. Um, but those are the types of questions we need to be focused on here. And you need to be focused on there, not because it's, I would predicate the same corruption in Austria. I don't know enough about Austria. Um, uh, but certainly in Germany and France, I don't see mm -hmm. the same type of corruption from this infrastructure. But I certainly would predict they'll be in the same place in 10 years. There's nothing to indicate they won't because nobody's identifying or focusing on what is it that's driving this problem. And I think it is a core problem of business model. It's the business model of advertising, which, you know, from people are, you know, people, you know, who are <laughs> the boomers, the idea that advertising is a existential threat to democracy is kind of crazy talk. But I actually think advertising is an existential threat to democracy right now. And it's not like we can go to a world where there's no advertising, but we have to go to a world where for advertising to succeed, it can't require we destroy democracy. And that's what I think you're seeing happening in the United States right now. Wow, okay. So, uh, I mean, the, the, the very last question from my side, if I may, Larry, uh, would then be, do you see in the US any, any uh, approaches, any, any tendencies to change anything there? Or is this just, I mean, do people listen what you're saying? Well, I think that we're in a moment of, a, people realize we are facing an existential crisis. I mean, it manifests itself most directly in the presidential election mm -hmm. that's happening right now. I mean, you know, if you're not in the United States, it might be hard to see, but it is really astonishing the stakes that have been raised on this presidential election. I mean, we have a presidential candidate who is threatening his attorney general because his attorney general is not bringing a criminal indictment against his opponent, right? That's, that's like banana republic level corruption. Um, and yet that's what we're in the middle of right now. And I think many people look at this and say, whoa, what got us here? Like, why are we behaving like this? You know, a, a people who would think, you know, 20 years ago, we would have thought that built into our DNA was resisting all of this kind of craziness. Like we had a robust democratic tradition. We would never tolerate this kind of crazy at the top or throughout our system. And yet, you know, almost overnight, within five years, we've flipped from that self-understanding to a country where, you know, nobody in the party resists the crazy man at the top and the man at the top is literally crazy. I mean, you know, he's not going to exterminate Jews. But, um, but he is exterminating a lot of other really important values inside of our society. Um, and, and so I, I think that that's triggering lots of people to say, well, what's doing this? Like, why are we like this? Um, and one thing they're focusing on is exactly the relationship to the technology. And so, again, I think Shoshana's book um, is really important here. Um, although, you know, in my book that I published last year, They Don't Represent Us, I'm critical of, 
of a kind of binary way in which mm -hmm. she thinks about the problem. Um, because I because uh, because I think that you know we have to recognize the good as well as the bad. I mean, one of the things uh, Aaron famous Aaron Swartz um, really brilliantly said is that it's you know in a kind of Dickensian way, it's the best of times and worst of times. The internet is the best technology there ever was, and it's also the worst mm -hmm. technology there ever was. And what we have to understand is how those two can live together. What's the Janus face character of this technology, and begin to be critical enough that we can say. We want an internet, but we don't want this version of the internet. Or we want technology of advertising, but we don't want a technology of advertising that's undermining the capacity for critical democratic thought. I mean, so so we need to become critical about this. Um, and I, I fear in the United States, uh, we need that critical attitude at exactly the wrong moment, because right now we don't have a robust capacity for think for institutionalizing critical thought through government, because government is totally captured by private interest right now. And so to the extent this critical thought leads to the recognition that these critical these fundamental in technology companies like Google and Facebook and and uh, Amazon um, are deep uh, uh, drivers of dystopia, um, we don't have the legal means through democracy to resist it because they fight back and and they win. Um, so so I, I think it's a it's a very dark moment, and it's inspiring lots of creative thought. But we need a lot more to figure out how we're going to. Yeah, get what what is really striking to me now is that the the very last sentences that you said remind me very much of a presentation that you gave somewhere in two thousand or so in uh, at the OSCON, if you remember the open source conference. Then you already oh, yeah. said then uh, we are getting into a more and more regulated society and we lose more and more of our freedom. And, and then you were very much focusing on intellectual property as, as the threat, whereas now you are very much focusing, if I understand it correctly, on, on privacy slash surveillance slash data protection as a European would put it. Um, and but the overall picture is black in both <laughs> in both presentations in a way, but now it's even more black, you would argue probably, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. the intellectual property problem was, yeah. you know, very esoteric. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I fought very hard to help build infrastructure to resist it. Creative Commons, mm. I think, um, you know, is an important contribution to that. But um, but mm. this is much more fundamental. And even the way we talk about it, I mean, the word privacy or surveillance, it's not really the problem. It's not mm. really the way to think about it. Um, or data protection, mm. that too, I mm. think, is the wrong way to think about it. And so what we need is like a new a, a new kind of understanding of what the threat here is. And it's really fundamental. It's a threat to humanity. It's not just, you know, it's not just the way that you individually are being, you know, manipulated into becoming what Facebook wants you to be so that you have better ads. Like that's insulting enough. But we collectively are losing a capacity to do something which we need to do collectively, which is to face problems um, that we all acknowledge our problems and decide what to do about them. You know, I mean, think about this pandemic. I mean, if you had told me a year ago that we would have a pandemic in the United States that would kill a quarter of a million people and that we would still have a partisan division in our understanding of the facts, I would have told you you're crazy. I mean, I would have said there's a limit mm -hmm. to this insanity, but I would have been wrong. The reality is we're in the middle of a pandemic where 40% of the public thinks it's either a hoax or a conspiracy or um, uh, an effort by Bill Gates mm -hmm. to implant um, uh, tracking devices in everybody through a vaccine. I mean, all this kind of craziness. And, you know, we can't even get agreement on something as simple as wearing masks. I mean, I understand the argument about mm -hmm. whether we should have a shutdown because people like me who have jobs that, you know, pay whether I have a shutdown or not, are okay with the shutdown, but people who are poor, don't have healthcare, don't have a job, who are sitting at home with kids who can't go to school, they really have a real reason to resist shutdown. So I understand that fight. I don't understand the fight about masks. I mean, that is just insane. I mean, the simplest thing to do to solve this problem is that everybody religiously wears masks. And yet even that has been politicized. I mean, the president makes it seem like it's a weakness of, of character to wear a mask. Um, uh, you know, until he himself gets the disease. Um, so, you know, so this is a product, I think, of this polarized, incentivized uh, media. 
And, um, and we got to figure out how to deal with that, because if we can't deal even with a pandemic, <laughs> then what problems can we deal with? Because this is the most visceral and real that you could have. And yet even here, mm -hmm. we fail as democracy. Very last question, if I may, Larry. What would you do today if you were 20 with knowing this, what you're telling us at the moment? So what would you do if you were a law student in your <laughs> 20s now? What is the top priority? You know, I have a 17-year-old son. He's the oldest of my three children. And um, this is a sad thing to admit. I, I think if I, were, if I were 15 or 17, um, I would try to do something that I wouldn't want to go into this field because it's too depressing. <laughs> I mean, I would want to be a scientist. I would want to be a mathematician. I would like to figure out fusion energy. I'd like to do something that, you know, can't be mucked up by crazy people, right? Because, because that's the reality we're in. We're in an ecosystem that's producing crazy and we don't have any good lever to resist it. So, um, you know, in some sense, I want to continue this fight, this fight that Aaron forced me to take up and finish and win it in part so, um, you know, it's, it's possible for people his age to make a choice about what to be without, without uh, that choice being affected by this deep uh, dysfunction pathology that's mm -hmm. now spread through our society. Thank you. That's, I mean, it's not the nicest ending, but it's a perfect ending of such a conversation. I'm sorry. So <laughs> I, I really very much appreciated this. Um, and uh, I, I think we have a lot to think about and probably um, a lot. I mean, it's I mean, part of the problem that you are telling us here is some kind of failure of our generation, right? So it, it very much has also to do with people mm -hmm. in in your or my age and and uh, and how we how how all this could happen. Um, so this, this is something our the younger generation, the, the, the generation of our kids will certainly blame us for. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they should. Okay. Yeah. So thank you so much for this, Larry. I really appreciated this. Thank um, you, have a good day. Um, and all the best to our listeners and okay. viewers and readers. Uh, it was a pleasure, really, and an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much. Bye. Great. Thank you.